brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Derek Owusu, and today I'm going to be talking to a national treasure, writer and dub poet, Benjamin Zephaniah. His collections, Talking Turkey, Wicked World and Funky Chickens, broke new ground in children's poetry. He is the only Rastafarian poet to be shortlisted for the chairs of poetry for both Oxford and Cambridge University, and has been listed in the Times list of 50 greatest post-war writers. Not bad for a bard from Birmingham. <laughs> Sorry, I love it, right? Go national on. treasure. <laughs> why, why, you don't consider yourself a national treasure? Not really. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what one is. But my idea is somebody who's like squeaky clean, never put a foot wrong, mm. is loved by the establishment. I'm not really liked by the establishment. I put lots of feet wrong. And then the whole thing about Oxford and Cambridge. I think I'm the only Rastafarian ever to go into Oxford and Cambridge. <laughs> 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 ever to walk through the hello doors. <laughs> how, how, did it, how did it feel being there? I mean, I, I've been there once and I remember just feeling like it was a completely different world. It is. I mean, yeah. I, I think those buildings, they're, they're made almost like courtrooms, the old-fashioned courtrooms. You mm. you are supposed to feel, you know, the weight of the establishment on you, you're supposed to feel like a subject, not like a citizen. Yeah. You know, you are supposed to feel small. That's how I feel. I think they're kind of design like that yeah but that's just my humble opinion some people might find them liberating and how, how did they receive you as like a as a dub poet you know an oral poet well there was a don at cambridge university that made it absolutely clear he said we love having benjamin zephaniah in here when mm-hmm. he comes in does his sessions he adds life to the place the students are talking about him for days after he's gone but we want him to go home at night right <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's exactly what he said right 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 and that right. was when i was offered the fellowship of trinity college yeah. in cambridge interesting so speaking of oral poetry when did you make the transition from oral to page poet or do you still consider yourself purely oral and it just so happens to be on the page sometimes it was kind of gradual i mean i loved performance poetry it was the only poetry i really knew mm. Yeah, and it was from my family, you know, my mother especially, kind of going around the house just performing old Jamaican poems. Mm. She never considered herself a poet. But if she wanted to remember something, she would, like, make a little rhyme, put it in a kind of poetic form. And, I mean, it was very practical stuff, you know, recipes and stuff like that. Mm. And then I remember I came to London in 1979 and... I wanted people to hear my poetry. I was in Birmingham, actually, and so, <laughs> this is true. Somebody said to me, because um, I used to perform really for the black community. Yeah. And somebody said to me, you know what? White people should hear this too. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, they'd listen to it. Yeah, man, white people listen to this. You know? And I was like, <laughs> um, go to London, boy. <laughs> so, so I headed to London and I had a girlfriend there and she said, a way of getting on in the world is being published. Mm. And so you got to start writing your poems down. Right. And I said my poems to her and she wrote them down. But she kept writing them down in standard English. And I say, no, no, capture the sound, capture the sound. Right. And then I went through a really strange stage, actually. I mean, I'm jumping years now, but I tried to get published. Mm-hmm. And people just rejected me. Mm-hmm. And some of them, I mean... Some of them were just really honest and open about why they were rejecting me. I remember one publisher who was a small alternative feminist publisher, actually. And I went there 
And the lady said, look, you know, we really don't know what to do with Rastafarian poetry. And I mean, I'm a Rasta, but I don't write Rastafarian poetry. I mean, I write all kinds of poetry, right? Mm -hmm. Many years later, a friend of mine, he went to the same place. The same thing was said to him and he left the building, was waiting at the bus stop and the woman come running down and said, I said that to Benjamin Zephaniah many years ago and I regret it now. <laughs> you want to come back and have a conversation? <laughs> but um, what they were saying was they didn't really understand how to take this oral poetry mm. and put it on the page and who the audience were. And I can kind of understand it because they weren't used to going to or seeing Caribbean community centres packed with people listening to poetry. I mean, at this time in Britain, performance poetry was, was almost gone. It was after the hippie Ginsberg era. Yep. You know, there was nothing really happening in performance poetry. The punk movement and the reggae movement came along and they had their poets. Yeah, but... the, clash, the clash kind of sounds like poetry over just, you know, metal. Not heavy you, you mean the clash of the band? Yeah, the band, yeah. Yeah, yeah the way they used well, to perform. And you know, loads of those bands were influenced by poetry or they spoke in a kind of poetic when I say as poetic I mean like a raw street poetic way then you had people like John Cooper Clark Attila the Stockbroker Stephen Wells who's passed away and then on the other side you had Linton Credit Johnson Gene Breeze Benjamin Zephaniah and he's playing the same venues but what happened to me to get back to your question was I said I probably can do without being published right and so I just went on the performance and I started performing like crazy, like I said. Mainly music venues rather than poetry venues. Mm. But when we went to poetry venues, I mean, we just packed them out. I remember performing for the Poetry Society, which was a little house in Earl's Court. Mm. And I think my followers turned up thinking it was a stadium or something because the whole street was just packed. Mm. And I had to perform in, in, in this room to, like, 20 people sitting there drinking a cup of tea and then all these punks and rusters outside going, Benjamin, <laughs> what's happening, bro? <laughs> but I made a name for myself in performance that made the publishers then come running to me. Right. But having said that, mm -hmm. there is an art, a skill, a craft in learning how to take performance poetry and make it work on the page. Sometimes you can't just take it as you say it and write it down. That was a mistake I made many years ago. So where did the music come in? You know, was your poetry informed by music or did the poetry you was writing inform the music you were making? The poetry was musical. Mm. You know, they came together. When I was writing poetry or creating poetry, because sometimes it wasn't written down, there was always music in the head, in the background, or I was writing for the voice and the voice had a sense of rhythm and musicality to it. So when you're doing performance poetry, you feel like you are doing music? Yes. Right. Yeah, I feel like I am the instrument, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I sometimes I will play, you know. I mean, I may do a poem that goes like, this poetry is like a rhythm that drops. The tongue brings a rhythm that shoots like a shot. This poetry is designed for ranting, dance our style, big mob chanting. But I might play with it. This poetry is like a rhythm that drops, 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 drops. Don't bring the rhythm that shoots like a shot, 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 Hey, this poetry is designed for ranting, 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 dance our style, big mob chanting, chanting, chanting. Right, 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 right. I mean, it's virgin onto song. This is the tradition I come out of, and a very old tradition that in Western culture seems to have been lost now. 
I mean, there's a whole spoken word scene which people think is new, and I always argue, no, it's, it's the oldest right. form of poetry, but it's just a younger generation have picked it up now. I love, in some languages, how the word for poem and song is the same word. A song is just a song poem, and that's in many cultures around the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, even if you take it back to... Homer and, you know, the bards and all those yes. kind of things, they were reciting their poetry yes. to, to music as well, wasn't they? Yeah. And my obsession at the moment is uh, Gilgamesh. And I don't know if you know, it's the first poem that they've ever found that's written down. Oh, the epic of Gilgamesh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just fascinating. And, I mean, it's only recently really been translated, or translated is not the right word. The code has been broken. However, even in translations into English, you can hear that this is something to be proclaimed, something to be spoken. Mm-hmm. It's not a new art form. It's, I believe that performance poetry is the oldest art form in the world. Okay. I think we were doing it before we were painting on caves and everything else. I agree, fully. Good. So, the, the, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the image of you um, performing in, you know, um, the Poetry Society with people drinking tea and then you've got the punks and the rusters outside, it just makes me wonder, so... What were the politics like at the time? When you were writing your poetry, did you have to consider what was going on around you or were you just kind of writing for yourself or writing to entertain? Oh, no, it was all about what was going on around us. Okay. All about that. I, When I start talking about this, I always have this pause moment where I think, how deep do I go and, and, you know, and how much do you know? And cause it was a really difficult time. Mm. Me and you, two black men, now, if we left this building and said, let's walk to, you know, Whitechapel, we would hardly think anything of it, you know. But in 78, 79, you'd probably say to me, is there any National Front out there on the way, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it'd be a question. Is Bobby like that? There's a police, is, is, you know, is it a place where we're likely to get stopped by the police? I mean, all these things we had to consider. Mm. So that's how much it was in your daily life. You had to kind of think about all these other forces that are out to kind of get you. So, I mean, I I think there's a, a thing about that poetry and the reggae music and a lot of other forms of music as well, and punk as well. Why it's so political is because we didn't have the luxury of not being political. Right. There's a great moment when Bob Marley's being questioned about this and somebody says to him, why is your work so political? And he genuinely doesn't understand the question because he doesn't really see his work as political. Mm. And he says, politics, this is my reality. So if I'm going to write a poem about my inability to enjoy walking around the park like the white people do or enjoy being able to walk home at night in the middle of the night from a club or just to be able to live in peace with the local constabulary and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's my life. If you want to call it political, you call it political. I understand it's political. But w- when we were teenagers, it was just, why can't we do this? Why are we getting beaten by the National Front? Mm-hmm. And So if we had, in those days, um, there was a thing called a seven-inch single record, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You wouldn't remember them, would you? I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, think, I think I've seen one before in like a museum or something. Right. <laughs> and they play music for three minutes or so. You've been oppressed all your life. You've got three minutes to speak to the world. 
you do it. Mm -hmm. You don't have a debate with yourself about whether this is political or not. Mm -hmm. You speak your truth. You imagine a woman being stalked at night or something like that now, and then she comes to you and tells you her story, and you say, why are you being political? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's our life. You know, it's a reality that we've got to live with, and we're trying to do something about it. And as artists, we just speak to it. Mm -hmm. So... I remember um, we had um, Suggs from Madness oh, yeah. here on, on, on the Penguin podcast. And he said, you know, of course, their music was heavily influenced yes. by reggae and yeah. whatnot. And he said at a lot of these shows, they would get like skinheads yes. turning up and it would frustrate them to the point where sometimes they would have to jump into the crowd. And I was there. Yeah. yeah. So I was going to say, did you get people turning up to your events where you were just thinking, what are you doing here? Well, with me, it was a bit different on the whole. When it was my gigs, people knew what they were coming to. But sometimes I would do gigs with Madness and... Mm. The Clash and two-tone bands like The Selector and The Specials, and you'd get these racist elements come. And, and it's weird because they're racist, but they love black music. I mean, you can, it's been proved now, scientifically proved, that you can hate black people but love black culture. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. a really weird thing, yeah. right? I was attacked twice. One day I was at Stonehenge Festival. Okay. And I was on stage and I saw somebody kind of coming towards me. And then some members of the audience like picked him up and kind of threw him back away from me. <laughs> and he was a relative of somebody called Lord Scarman. You wouldn't know him. No, I don't know. He, he did a report into the um, Brixton riots. Right. Okay. And I used to have a poem called This Policeman Keeps On Kicking Me To Death. Mm -hmm. Subtitle, Lord Scarman Dobb. <laughs> Oh, uh, I see. And I, it's, it's not, I don't say anything offensive about him. Yeah. I'm just saying that these um, reviews and reports that they write after these things happen don't really do much, you mm -hmm. know. But he was offended because I, I said something about his, his uncle or something. And once somebody did go to strike me mm -hmm. after I came off stage and I was going into the lift. The lift had a little bit of glass on it. You know, sometimes you can see into... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I saw the guy's reflection. Mm -hmm. And as you know, I'm a martial artist, mm -hmm. right? So I just did a back kind of sweep on his feet and he went down. <laughs> That's all I did. And I looked at him on the floor and said, what are you, what are you what doing? Are you, what are you doing? Yeah. And he was from South Africa and he hated my anti-apartheid poem. He said, you know, black people, there was a line that some people used to say about apartheid South Africa that, you know, the black people in South Africa get the best treatment than anywhere else in South Africa. <laughs> That's so interesting because I, I remember you saying that, you know, racist kind of, often do like black music. I remember watching, uh, I believe it was a documentary of Louis Theroux, he went to South Africa mm. and they were like real like skinhead racist mm. saying they wanted like complete separate state. They live on their own farms and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then Louis Theroux went through his album and he pulled out Lionel Richie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was like, so would Lionel Richie be allowed to come and, and live around you? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's so bizarre to see, but yeah, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. So now let's move on to your items, the items. Right, okay you brought to talk about. And the first one I want to talk about is a letter that you said you received from Bob Marley. Yes. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Well, I can't remember how old I was now. I think I was like a teenager, late teen. And I wrote a letter to him. I think the address is, I think, I think I can remember it, 56 Hope Road, Kingston, Jamaica. Wow. And um, he doesn't live there anymore if anybody's going to write to him. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I just gave him some of my poems and said, look, I'm a poet from Birmingham and um, I love your work and I hope you can read my poems and get something from them or words to that effect. For a long while, I didn't hear anything from him. And then 
after a while, I got a handwritten letter from him. Wow. It didn't say much. It just said something like, I love your poetry. Britain needs you, so carry on. Wow. Do you still have that? No. Oh, no. That's the thing. I, I mean, every time I tell that story, the next thing is, do you still have that? Yeah. At the time, I had so many girlfriends, and I left it around one of their houses. Oh, no. And I think I, she fell out with me. <laughs> probably tore it up. <laughs> tore it up or something. <laughs> so, um, but for a while, it was my pride and joy. And I have to say that I loved Bob Marley. People who understand the story of Bob Marley, especially in Britain, will know. For a long while, he wasn't that popular, especially amongst the black community. Mm. When I used to go to what they used to call blues dances, listen to heavy dub reggae music, they really didn't like Marley. They mm. thought he was too light. He was too almost sentimental. Was this when he left the Whalers? Or was he still Yeah, quite... after he left the Whalers. Mm. And he was too like radio friendly. But I always used to just love the poetry of his lyrics. You know, he wanted it to be on radio. He wanted to popularise reggae, but still keep the militancy but he was also very proud of his love songs. A lot of wrestlers didn't like the love songs. They were just... Too macho. Yeah. But yeah, I appreciated him as a poet. So and that was important to me because it happened at a time when or what I was doing was really new. I hadn't met other poets like Linton or Jean Breeze and yeah. all the other Caribbean poets that came out of Britain later. So I was in a little world of my own. So to get that kind of stamp of approval from the grandmaster was brilliant. You know what? That's so funny because that's exactly how I feel about you. So you were <laughs> one of the first people to read my, my novel in verse. Uh, I remember I emailed you and I didn't think you'd email me back. And then I think months later you said, Derek, I'm sitting in an airport and I'm reading your book and I'm loving it. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, okay, you know what? <laughs> if Benjamin Zephaniah says it's good, let me keep, let me keep going. Do you know what I mean? The, the letter that I wrote to you, the reason why I wrote it, where I was is because I want to write an immediate, honest response. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to write till three days later in the hotel when I'm sitting back. I, I just think, oh, this is really moving me. Let me just write to the brother. It like, means so much more you know. as well like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And sometimes it's raw. Sometimes, you know, there's a, the spelling's bad. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I just want to get it out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So your next item or lack of a next item was supposed to be a book that you read when you were younger. But you've said you didn't read much when you were younger. No. I hardly read at all. I don't remember books in school. I, you know, I didn't really have a great time at school. And then I got kicked out when I was 13. I do remember in school once a teacher telling me that we were going to do poetry. And I read some poems to my sister and she wrote them down. And I took them into class and I thought I was going to impress the teacher. Mm. And I said to her, Miss, do you like poetry? And she went, no, I can't stand it. She said, I just do it because it's part of English and it's part of my job. Oh, no. What and a I, thing to say. I know. I just thought, wow, oh, gosh. This is a person who's supposed to be teaching me and kind of inspiring me and everything else. And I thought I was going to have, like, a bonding thing with her because I like poetry. And she just said, I, I don't like it. And I just thought, she doesn't like it. And then I found a guy in school that liked poetry. And it was mm. really odd. I really describe it as, like two gay guys coming out to each other because mm. it was like, you like poetry? I did, bro. Yeah? Show me yours, I'll show you mine. We <laughs> 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 used to go in a little corner yeah, yeah, yeah. and read poems to each other. <laughs> you know? And it was like our little secret. Mm -hmm. you know? There were no books in, in our house. My dad shouted at me if he saw me with a book. Really? Why? Yeah. He just thought... I actually had a book one day and I was reading it and he slapped it out of my hand and he said, what, you got nothing to do? And he found me something to do. He thought that you read a book if you got nothing to do. Mm. When I first published my very first book, Penridden Poet, I got a, I had a girlfriend 
and I was just so proud. I was proud of my girlfriend. I was proud of my book. I went to see my dad. He took the book, threw it on the floor, and said, who wants to listen to you? Wow. You know. <laughs> then many years later, he's escaped death because he was given, like, 10 weeks to live in England or something. Mm -hmm. He went to Barbados and lived for many years afterwards. Mm -hmm. For some reason, he started driving tourists around in a little buggy, and he was driving to some tourists one day, and one of them was reading one of my books. And he said, that's my son. And this person turned around, and I heard this kind of secondhand, of course. This person turned around and gave him a lecture on Benjamin Zephaniah for an hour. And apparently he was really moved by it. He said, I didn't know all that about my son. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. So you know, what, what made you then decide to start writing children's books? Is it because of the lack of in your, in your youth? Well, I, I was always very playful with my poetry, even when it was serious. I used to write children's poetry, but I just thought, you know, it's part of all of the poetry that I'm doing. Right. That's like William Blake did something similar as well, didn't he? I think he was writing for children. It's funny to say that. And he put them in the adult books. It's funny to say that. I was just reading um, William Blake. I forgot the songs of... Songs of Innocence and Experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a whole mixture of stuff in there. I think it stuck out because there was lots of people writing children's books, obviously, and writing about animals, but there were always really fluffy animals and really nice animals. And I was writing about animals that were going to be slaughtered. Yeah, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I was writing about bullying mm -hmm. in the playground. I was writing about the lack of, Black history in schools, you know. I mean, I wrote one poem, it's a letter to a teacher, explaining to the teacher that I know about civilization. I know it started in the Nile. I know that Egyptians had systems of sewage relief and air conditioning a long time before Europeans ever thought of it, you mm -hmm. know. And then Talking Turkeys, the poem itself, became this, like, massive hit. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to kind of, for some people to appreciate now, <laughs> I wrote this poem called Talking Turkey, and it was like having a number one hit in the charts. I mean, really? it was just everywhere. Kids were doing it to this day, you know, if you look yeah. at my Twitter feed, you see kids doing it, all different versions of it. There's a wonderful version of Brian Blissett reading it. Really? Be nice to your turkey, this kid. <laughs> it's just like, you know, just, um, and I meet actors and actresses all the time that tell me that, you know, they've read it for a charity or something like that. Mm. Do you feel more satisfied when you're writing for children as opposed to standing up and reciting things for adults? You know, you can't just be straightforward political with children. You've got to be creative political, mm -hmm. you know. So it doesn't seem like you're being political and you shouldn't really be telling them how to vote, but you're telling them to think about this issue. So, you know, I've got this poem called Man on the Moon, for example. You know, there's a man on the moon, he's floating and stuff. There's a man on the moon, he looks really tough. There's a man on the moon and he's all alone. There's a man on the moon, his wife is at home. He's dancing around to real moony music. He carries his air, he knows how to use it. He waves to his wife, she's on planet E. She's waving back, but he cannot see. The man on the moon is so clever. He has some ideas to pursue. His chewing gum can last forever. His fast food is already chewed. There's a man on the moon, he has a spaceship. There's a man on the moon, and we paid for it. <laughs> you see that last line? Yeah, yeah. That's like a more subtle version of Gil Scott Heron's 
Whitey's on the moon. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not yeah. saying there's nothing wrong with moon exploration in the space. I'm very much into it. But these questions have to be asked. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so moving on to your next item, which is your mother's passport. Yeah, I have it. Oh, you have it with you? Okay. I have it here. It's an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. My mother's maiden name was Honigan. Anybody here from a particular area of Jamaica mm-hmm. called Black River, when they hear the name Honigan, will go, oh, yeah, we know Honigans. I mean, right. <laughs> it's one guy he used to own the bus service mm-hmm. and just had loads of children. Right, right, right. <laughs> they say he had about 50 children or something, you know what I mean? Yeah. And the interesting thing about this is that it's signed Hugh Foot. See, by the, you know, could you imagine yeah. every passport now being signed by Boris Johnson or something? I mean, and that, this is terrible podcasting, right? That's, that's the picture your, of my mum when she just came here. So when you received this passport, was this the first time you realised what your mother's real name was? Because I know in Jamaican culture, everybody's known by their nickname, usually until their funeral, and then you find out who, what their name is really. Well, there's a couple of names flying around, and it's because of the half-brothers, and she'd have a brother or sister, mm-hmm. and they'd be called E-Banks. And i go, how did that work? You know what I mean? So there was Honigan, E-Banks, and a couple of other names. And the other interesting thing about this, talking about names as well, I mean, my mum's name is Valerie. I thought it was Valerie for a long time. Actually, this passport tells us that it's Felita. But she came to England. Mm-hmm. She was talking to this woman she was working with. She said, my name's Felita. And she goes, oh, Felita, that's a bit too difficult. Can we call you Valerie? <laughs> So, so, since then, everybody called it Valerie, you know. It's stamped the 7th of May. This is Immigration Departure, Jamaica, mm-hmm. 1957. And it's only used once, you know. She mm-hmm. came to England and that was it. Now, she did go back to Jamaica. Yeah. But I had to take her back. She didn't want to go back. I said, Mum, just go back to your homeland and see. Why was there resistance to that? Because she just thought, you know... I've left Jamaica, I don't really want to go back. And I knew my mum's mum better than my mum. So I said, mum, go back and meet your mum. I remember I had to kind of introduce my mum to her mum. Because wow. <laughs> they hardly knew each other. In Jamaica, you can get raised by anybody. She was partly raised by her uncle and another relative. And I was touring at the time in the States. And I came back and my mum was at the airport. And she was, get me out of this place. I don't want to stay here. And I was like, why? She says, the buses don't run on time. Uh, the mosquitoes have no respect. <laughs> and it's so hot. You know? And she, she's had no wish to go back. She's very English in that mm. sense. You know? Yeah. But yeah, so this passport is, and she gave it me. And I just love it. I just love looking at it and looking at my mother so young and just thinking, wow, you know, how brave she was to kind of uh, take that step and come to Britain with very few contacts here. Mm. And when it says, what job do you do? Um, occupation. Domestic, which is just a word for cleaner. Cleaner, yeah. You know, basically, if you were a woman and you didn't really have a trade or a skill or something, you just said domestic. Mm-hmm. It means that you can clean in the house, and you can clean out the house, you can clean outside the house, you can clean anybody's house. But what she really wanted to do was be an NHS nurse. You know. Okay. Yeah. That's the thing she really wanted to do. And why wasn't she able to to achieve that? Well, she did. Oh, she did? Okay. Oh, yes, she was a nurse for most of her life. Oh, right, okay, okay. Well, she came to England, to Sheffield. Mm-hmm. She worked as a cleaner just for a few weeks. Oh, I see, okay. And then she made a contact with somebody, said, I can get you some training for nursing. Mm-hmm. She went to Birmingham and became what they used to call a state-registered nurse. Okay. So that's what she did. She claimed that she delivered Lenny Henry. 
Really? Yeah. I, I, I told him that the other day and he told me what hospital he was in. I went, yeah, my mum worked there. So I think it's true. It might be true. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. So your, your mum being a nurse, is that what made you like really health conscious? Because, I mean, your next item you've said is, is your breaths, your breathing. Yeah. Does it come from your mum working in a hospital? No, not really. I'll tell you why. Because I love the National Health Service mm -hmm. and the people that work in it. But it comes out of a Western culture that is obsessed with healing people that are sick. Now, that sounds great. Mm -hmm. What is even better is not getting sick in the first place. Mm -hmm. And that comes from the East. <laughs> All right? That comes through breathing, yoga, meditation, and diet. Now, we can all get sick, but it's about how we heal ourselves and trying to avoid being sick in the first place. So I was a very sickly child. I mean, if I can tell you the things that used to happen to me, every time the temperature rose over a certain degree, my nose would bleed. Then I got TB wow. and almost died. I was lucky because I didn't get lots of the things that were going around. There's a lot of young people now who have experienced a pandemic for the first time. But I remember seeing the back end of the polio pandemic. I remember kids coming to school with their legs in like braces, metal braces. And I can remember people talking about the smallpox and measles pandemic that had happened just before. And I remember getting the polio, it was a lump of sugar, the vaccine was a lump of sugar. But I remember getting the smallpox injection and all that kind of stuff. Mm. I'm the oldest one of my siblings. Well, I've got a twin sister. But when people put us together, they always say, you look younger. <laughs> I look like the youngest. I'm just obsessed with taking care of myself, mm. you know. When I was younger, I used to do jogging and sports and things like that. And um, people used to say to me, you know, you're a young man, you're fit, why do you have to keep doing all this stuff? And I used to say, well, you know, some people invest in stocks and shares and houses and cars and stuff like that. I invest in myself. Mm. Now, the reason why I put breathing is so important is because we take it for granted. Most people are breathing all the time. Well, most people are breathing all the time. All people are breathing all the time. <laughs> if you're not breathing, you've got a problem. But actually, people breathe very little, very shallow in the top of the chest. Mm -hmm. We learn how to breathe very low mm -hmm. in the stomach. So when we do martial arts, really, we do it with the breath. That's why we shout. And when you do yoga, you've got to learn how to relax when you go into the poses. When we do mm -hmm. Tai Chi, we are literally playing with the chi, the energy, the breath. We're learning how to move it around the body. This is very bad podcasting because I'm doing the movements now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so finally, your final object. Oh. You've chosen nature, people, organic things as yeah. things that inspire you the most. Yeah. I just love people. I love life. I think life is amazing. Mm. I mean, plants, everything is amazing. I mean, what woman and mankind do is also amazing, you know, making the studio, making spaceships, doing all this kind of stuff. But actually, I think the fact that we exist... It's mind-boggling, isn't it's, it? It's, you know, from what happened out there in the universe to us coming together here, I mean, I'm just amazed by it. And one of the great things about meditation is that, you know, I just talked about the studio and this table and the aeroplanes and everything. They're all amazing. But one thing they don't do... And it's kind of going back to the last thing is they don't they don't breathe. Mm. Every other organic thing is breathing. Grass is breathing. Trees are breathing. We are breathing. Cats and dogs are breathing. 
you could say fish are not breathing, but they are. You know what I mean? There's a way that they take oxygen and they just take it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Life is amazing. The fact that we exist is just mind-boggling. And, you know, I love reading books about how the universe started and how it expanded and human beings and how the skeleton works and all that kind of stuff. It just fascinates me. And I'm just glad to be alive, you know. I'm just glad to be alive. When you get to my age, I look back, especially in the business that I work in, and see so many people that didn't make it because they abused drugs or they lived dangerously or they couldn't deal with the world and felt that, you know, they had to take their own lives. And and I just think it's great to be here. That's why I'm not really into my birthdays and Christmases and stuff like that. I get up every day and I go, wow, you know, this is amazing. I still work, I still move. Mm. And um, Does it never fill you with an existential dread? You know, there's like, like a moment of realisation where you're like, whoa, I am alive. This is kind of strange that I can get up and walk around and think and all of these kind of things. Does it, do you never feel dread or is it always optimism and happiness that you feel? I'm always optimistic about it. I, I, yeah, I'm always very happy with it. I don't feel it's a burden at all until I start feeling pain. <laughs> and, you know, why was pain invented? Mm. But actually, I do understand why pain is invented. You know what I mean? It's to protect you. Mm. You know, when you have an injury, there's inflammation around it that's sharp to protect the injury. Yeah. You know, so we take anti-inflammatories. They're not good all the time because they're not dealing with the injury. They're just dealing with inflammation around it. Anyway, that's another thing. But what I used to think about is the opposite, death. What's that like? And as you know, I'm fascinated with religions as well. Because I'm not religious. I look at the way that people have viewed creation in the world and everything else. Mm-hmm. Actually, most religions say in one way or another that we're going to go back where we came from. Mm. Yeah. And that's even beyond heaven and hell, which I'm not sure it really exists. And then I think to myself, well, what was it like before I was here? Well, it wasn't painful. Mm. We don't remember it as bliss, but we don't remember pain. We, we just don't remember it. And if that's it, that's not bad, really. I guess the kind of not existing part of death is what scares a lot of people. This mm. is the idea of, I guess, missing out on things, one, and, you know, missing people and those kind of things. But then just the kind of nothingness, because it's hard to conceptualise, you begin to start fearing it. I've thought about these things deeply. And for me, the big question is, will I be alive to see Aston Villa win the League Cup? <laughs> you know? Right. We've got to talk real now. I mean, I mean, Leicester did it, so maybe. <laughs> if Leicester could do it, yes, yeah, exactly. should do it. But I want them to do it in my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Thanks, Benjamin. It's been great talking to you. It's been an amazing conversation. And I appreciate you coming in on your birthday, you know. Cool, man. Only for you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Peace. Thanks to Benjamin Zephaniah for joining us today. And thank you for listening wherever you are. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review too and help get the word around. Coming up soon, we have Damon Galgut talking to us about his book winning novel, The Promise, and Darren McGarvey talking to us about his new book, The Social Distance Between Us. Do not miss those. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Benjamin's work, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcast. I'm Derek Wusu and see you next time. Yeah.